0: Welcome to the Future of Growth podcast with Agrify, formerly known as Agrify Live. Here we'll be exploring all things related to cannabis, ag tech, controlled environment agriculture, vertical farming, cultivation science, industry trends, and more. Informed by science and driven by data, episodes will enlighten our audience through open dialogue with thought leaders, innovators, and industry disruptors who are forging the future of growth. Join our host, David Kessler, Chief Science Officer at Agrify, as he dives into the many facets that cannabis and agriculture have to offer. Stay connected with Agrify by joining us on all platforms at Agrify Corp. And by visiting our website, www.agrify.com. Sit tight for another episode of The Future of Growth, coming at you now.
1: Today, I'm so pleased to be joined by Liz Connors. Liz is the Director of Analytics at Headset.io and Headset, for those that don't know, is really the preeminent data collection and amalgamation company in the cannabis industry. Uh, Liz, thank you so much for coming on and making time today.
2: Yeah, happy to. Thank you very much for having me
1: we're thrilled that you, may, uh, you were able to join. Liz, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the cannabis space to start and, and a little bit about Headset as well.
2: Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I'm the director of analytics at Headset. And um, I have been in the cannabis space, I guess, for maybe four-ish years now. Um, so prior to that, I did um, some consulting work And I worked in both financial services, um, tech and CPG, doing uh, Mm -hmm. data science for customer, um, usually customer-focused data science. And I opened my own consulting company and that's how I got connected with Headset. Um, At the time, uh, they were building out their platform um, and putting together ways for cannabis operators to use data um, that were similar to the ways or hoping to bring the, the methods of CPG over into cannabis. Um, and so to me, it was super appealing because uh, at the time and, and, you know, still today, um, a lot of cannabis is, is like mom and pop. I mean, even the really large companies still, we're not talking, you know, companies the size of, of Mars or Kellogg's, you know, um, or Kraft or something. And so uh, it was, it's a very scrappy industry uh, where a lot of people have to make do with what they can get. And it was a really inspiring mission to come and kind of help, um, you know, small business proprietors, a lot of people that are internally bootstrapped, you know, get analytics in their hands so they can drive their revenue. Um, Today, it's a little different. Today, we've got these much larger companies. um, We've made our tools much more sophisticated. And so it's just, it's been like just an excellent journey for sure.
1: That is fantastic, and I, I think that just being in the industry, as nascent as it is, but as quickly as it's moving to address such a uh, pre-existing market, it's it's a, an incredible roller coaster ride. I'm sure you've had plenty of ups and downs. Oh, for you sure. Know, yeah. When you're talking about you know the mom and pop cultivators and how things are moving towards CPG or a consumer product good, you know, one of the things I've always been curious about is the level of consistency. I was on a panel in Michigan and someone said, you know, we have customers, they come in and they buy our product and they they buy it a second time with the analytics. They see that, but they almost never buy it a third. And they they asked me to postulate why that was. You know, you're know, you the data scientist, you're the one there. My answer was they probably had an expectation of an experience and, and didn't get the same experience because of the plasticity of the plant or the lack of consistency. But do you see that buying trend in the analytics that headset sees? Uh, how much repeat consumerism is there?
2: Yeah. I mean, there definitely is, uh, there definitely exists repeat consumerism and there, there exists brands that have, um, you know, very loyal customers. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, I think there's two things. I actually, I I very much agree with your hypothesis that, um, it is, uh, sometimes quality is inconsistent. Um, and I think that that's especially true in newer markets as people, you know, if, if it was someone you were talking to in Michigan and they were buying adult use cannabis, likely that company has only been around for, I mean, what, not even a year. And so really by
1: law, new. yeah, you can't, <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> not yeah. legally at least. Um, and so, and you know, these, these, um, these facilities they're buying are new, the lights they're buying are new. I mean, like everything they're doing is new. And so I do think it takes, you know, a hot minute to get your consistency. Now, when we look in legacy states, you know, states where we've had producers that have been around for years, I think that's where we start to see a lot of that like repeat consumerism as brands, you know, develop their message, develop their products. But I think the other thing that we need to keep in mind that sometimes doesn't um, come front of mind to people when they're thinking about repeat purchase rates is the at, when a market is brand new the consumer is also likely brand new, at least to that regulated channel. So if, if they're not brand new to cannabis as like a thing, um, they're brand new to this experience for purchasing. And um, you know, I think before they just kind of, uh, if they were buying cannabis, they just sort of trusted the person that sold it to them. Now we have all these brands, all these options. And I think one, there's a lot of a trial because that's new and interesting. The average cannabis retailer in Washington carries 5,000 distinct SKUs in a year. That's a lot of product. And, you know, sometimes even if you love a gummy, there's 10 more. Like, why not see if you like one that's better? Listen, um, from a
1: black market perspective, where a lot of the existing consumers came from, having choices was a rarity and having hundreds of choices was almost never seen. So God, no. I can imagine someone just saying, I got to try one of everything. And yeah. there's buying limits. So that's over time. So that's yeah. a really interesting point.
2: I think so. And I think too, you know, customers are still learning what they like and what works for them. You know, before uh, there wasn't all this consistency, there wasn't all the writing on the back of packages. We didn't have the chance to try things over and over to try different brands. And I think Um, while some of it is in the the control of brands as a brand, you having your quality under control, that's in your control. Some of this is consumers trying to figure out who they are and what they want. And so I think as a brand thinking about how you can educate a consumer that your product is what they want is one of the things that's going to lead you to better repeat purchase rates.
1: Awesome. We're already getting questions rolling in, and Matthew, thank you for that question, but I think we're going to let Liz go a little bit further, but I promise we'll address your question, so thank you, and please keep sending those in. But Liz, before we jump in, tell me a little bit more high level of of who Headset is and what the client base of Headset is. Is it the consumer? Is it a cultivator? Is it a dispensary? Where, Where does Headset really rest home?
2: Sure. So Headset is a cannabis analytics company. And so we have um, software and analytics tools uh, for all the way from the investor through the manufacturer, the distributor, the finished goods maker, um, all the way down to the retailer. So we don't really offer anything to cannabis consumers, but rather the people that are in charge of either making, selling, or investing in these products. Um, so for retailers, we have a tool uh, called Retailers. It's tough to mess up what it's for. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we have two there. We have a free one and a paid one. And those are um, BYO data. So as a retailer, you connect to Headset, you bring your own data in. And what we do is make you um, analytics software that can help you run your business. So I used to work for a major grocery store company, um, all of our, you know, from our buyers to our um our store owners, to our people that managed HR. I mean, these, these people all had analytics and dashboards to help them be efficient, drive revenue, um, run their marketing campaigns, all of these things. So Headset builds those for you. Um, and so we have a, a paid and a premium product, depending on the level of kind of analytics you want to get into. And, and then for uh, brands and investors and even retailers, we have a product called Insights. Which is market insights. So we do daily SKU level forecasts for I think eleven markets now, across the United States and Canada. And in that tool, you can do things like understand what brands are winning or losing, what formats are the best, what strain is um, has the best sales, but like the lowest brand penetration. So maybe there's an opportunity. We have pricing tools to help you decide how to price and position your products. Um, And we have tools to help investors understand how these brands are um, growing in the marketplace what types of consumers like them you know who's buying it are they buying it again what um, how much will they spend in a in a long period and then finally we have a vendor managed inventory tool called bridge that bridges um distributors and manufacturers and Mm -hmm. retailers together and helps them manage their inventory in real time
1: that's fantastic now might be a perfect time for matthew's questions he says what percentage of specific data and information is being collected? And are you sharing that information with small businesses?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, um, so my, my very high level answer is for every dollar spent on cannabis in the U S and Canada, 25 cents comes into headsets, databases. Um, so we have a very wide picture. Um, yeah, yeah. For every, for every uh, dollar with George Washington, I see your quarter with George Washington. Um, So uh, (laughs) so a whole lot of data comes in for sure. Um, As for what we're sharing, uh, we don't actually share like de-aggregated store data or anything like that, um, except for in some cases where we help stores sell their data to to parties that are interested in, so we'll help broker that sale. but most of the data that we share is either your own data, and we're just taking that raw data, much like you take, much like, you know, a gummy manufacturer will take the raw plant and turn it into a gummy. We'll take your raw data and turn it into insights. Um, and then for our market insights product, uh, there, anyone can buy that data. It's all forecasted data. It's all anonymized. Um, we have customer analytics in there that come from like CRM systems and loyalty programs of retailers, but again, all anonymized. You can't tell I'm Liz Connors. You just know that I'm a 36-year-old female who shops about twice a month and uh, prefers Mm. pre-rolls because I'm lazy. We don't know you're lazy. (laughs) We have to infer that, um, but I do know it's because I'm lazy.
1: Um, (laughs) I doubt that, Liz. I doubt that. Maybe (laughs) you're conscientious of how you spend your time at at worst.
2: Oh, my gosh. Look Um, at that spin you just put on that. That was excellent, David.
1: (laughs) Oh, I do my best. I do my best. You got to have a silver tongue. Well, I I appreciate how you're collecting the data. 25% of all of the aggregate sales is a tremendous amount of information. How do you utilize that data? How are... I guess, how is the data you're collecting benefiting, let's say, a dispensary? So specifically, uh, they've come to you, they've signed up uh, for the retailer program. (laughs) And, uh, you know, what is the data going to show them and, and how are they going to either monetize or leverage that?
2: Yeah, yeah. So if they sign up for a retailer, it's mostly data about themselves. So you have all of this raw data every day, every single time your register dings, every single time you bring a product into your um, vault in the back, you're creating a point of data that you can use to make a decision. And so for retailers, what we do is we take all those disparate data points and turn them into focused dashboards. So there's a dashboard to help you do customer segmentation. There's a dashboard to help you understand is your product assortment, Working for you? Are there like brands or products you shouldn't want, um, carry and maybe some that are super important that you're stocking out of that you're losing sales? Um, we have tools to help you analyze your discounts, to help you plan for events like 420 or the Christmas holidays. Um, we have, I mean, gosh, there's so much in there. I think there's like 50 different uh, use case specific dashboards. But in addition to this, that's all your own data. Um, retailers also have access to a tool called benchmarking. And in Mm -hmm. benchmarking, what my team does is we um, create forecasts for the market as a whole. And so you can see uh, things like, well, my sales at my store are about 20% edibles, uh, but in the marketplace, it's about 15% edibles. So then you can dig in and see what brands are selling best. So maybe you're over-indexing in edibles. You sell a lot and that's what you want, but you find you're under-indexing in like pre-rolls, let's say. Um, So from there, you can go and dive in and see, well, maybe does that mean you should be carrying different brands of pre-rolls? Are your pre-rolls priced too high and maybe keeping consumers away Mm -hmm. from them? Um, So you can sort of, first we want to, from a data ideology standpoint, we always want to understand ourselves first. And then once we know ourselves very well, we want to understand how we fit in the world around us. And so it's kind of You can take that first step to understand you and then take that next step to understand where do you fit in your environment and how do you grow knowing yourself? How do you compare
1: to your your peers? How do you compare to the other competitors, the other dispensary owners in this particular market? So with your analytics, would you be able to determine that you know, certain brands are moving very quickly, while other brands of edibles, the same product, let's say a 100 milligram chocolate bar, are just languaging on the shelf for, you know, weeks or months. Is that level of granularity available through the headset analytics?
2: Oh, for sure. And and not only that, you could kind of dive in and, and use the tool to diagnose perhaps why that's happening. Oh. So what we might find is there's a gummy brand that um, isn't growing and a gummy brand that is. We look and the gummy brand that is isn't growing only offers a core priced product that's priced slightly above average and they have like 60 SKUs. So we have a lot of like um, Kind of that problem of the seven jellies, like a consumer paradox of choice issue going on.
1: Absolutely, um, paralysis and, by options. Too many oh, make yeah. it hard to choose.
2: Yeah, and so and maybe you know maybe it's difficult for them to maintain their um, capacity. What we could see then is maybe another brand that's winning. They they actually have a core and a premium product, so they can better segment their consumers into two different price bands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they've tightened up their strategy on milligrams of THC. Maybe they only offer a handful of flavors. Um, So you can do all that type of analysis, not just to know who's winning, but why they're winning, Um, which I think is, is probably more important than who is why. Um, Because if we're either trying to stock our store with the things that make us win, or we're a brand trying to compete, the fact that somebody beat you doesn't tell you much, unless you know it's because they have better, they have like better sneakers, or they had a better um, weights coach, or they have a better diet, right?
1: The, 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 the data you're providing points in a direction, you still need to analyze that data and understand that maybe they have more education or maybe their price points are a little bit higher, which actually makes their product seem as a premium level. Uh, Sometimes the lowest price point doesn't win, uh, although it is a very common uh, question in dispensaries, what's the least expensive uh, you have? also the most potent, very frequent questions. What other questions do you hear or does the data kind of show might move the needle at a dispensary level?
2: At a dispensary level? Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I think one of the biggest things is making sure that you um, have in stock your products that are critical to you, especially when we're talking about, so like I said, in Washington, the average dispensary will manage about 5,000 SKUs in a year. To give you context, Trader Joe's only manages 4,500. So this little dispensary, right, that's trying to, to get Couple their thousand revenue. thousand
1: square inventory.
2: feet. Yeah, they have more SKUs than Trader Joe's. Think of how many analysts trade. Think of how many pairs of these glasses are at Trader Joe's right now
1: doing their inventory
2: <laughs> analysis. Um,
1: <laughs> I'm sure many, many.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have, they have teams of people. Um, and so I think, like, understanding how do you get the right products there and make sure they're available when your customers come in is is very critical. I think that's going to become even more true as we see people move to shopping online. So before, mm-hmm. when there wasn't as much online presence, you went to the store and you were like, oh, do I want to drive to another store? I'll just have whatever. But now, ahead of time, I can look and, like, oh, you don't have my product. Like, I found it somewhere else. So. You know, I'll I'll go there. I didn't already make the trip, or I'll have it delivered. Um, Because to me, it's no difference if the delivery driver drives an extra five minutes. Either way, I hundred
1: percent. And you have Weed Maps in the news because of their IPO valuation this week. But you also have places like iHeartJane that are aggregating brand data so you can know what's actually in stock at the dispenser you want to go to and save you that extra trip of you know showing up and your favorite product's not there.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, and
1: that's a valuable service.
2: As a consumer, yes. As a store, that means you better be tight now, right? Like That's right. If you you don't
1: adopt the technology, then you're not going to be able to be represented.
2: Yeah, Um, yeah. and you can't do this luxury of, oh, no, we're out of that, but this is the same, right? You don't have that bud there to manage that sale. Um, And so you can't rely on your sales staff to either upsell to cross-sell to change people's minds in that instance. And so I think the way we think about interacting with our consumers, Consumers there, and our product assortment is is going to become more and more critical over time.
1: But if you don't adopt technology, whether it's headsets, analytics, or someone else's uh, data aggregation to allow a better consumer experience, you know the market is going to move past you, and that's what we're all trying to avoid—is to keep up in this extremely fast-moving industry. Yeah, um,
2: please don't become the Circuit City as a retailer. I think no, today, I don't no. want to be the Circuit
1: city Are bad. <laughs> Uh, I'm old. so blockbuster for me. Oh my gosh. People now don't even know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, You had mentioned the holidays and I know everybody's getting really excited for Christmas and the winter holidays. Uh, we wish you happy holidays to all our listeners, whatever, uh, denomination or ethnicity or, uh, religion you are. But do cannabis consumers have a change in buying trends around the holidays? I don't know a ton of people that are getting an ounce of uh cannabis flour for Christmas, but maybe.
2: You know what? Uh they do. And so so actually there's a lot of holidays that cannabis sales pop and different things pop each time. Um so really? around the the winter holidays, especially the gifty holidays. Um We start to see things pop like um, topicals, um, like very nice edibles, like the premium edibles. Um, But we also see a little boost in cheap edibles and in pre-rolls, I think. And my hypothesis here is, you know, the in-laws are a lot. Um, but man, those little mints are discreet when I'm there. <laughs> it's not a yeah. gift for someone else. It might be a coping mechanism for the There's person
1: nothing wrong it. with gifting yourself a little extra cannabis to get you through the holidays, everybody. Yeah, I sure. absolutely encourage
2: it. But we definitely do see like premium edibles for sure do very well this time of year and we actually see most stores will go out of stock of those. And I, I actually did like a whole, a whole presentation on it last year to try to get people to start thinking about how gifty cannabis items can be um, and how we make sure we have those in stock and market them that way. Because if you run out of those premium edibles today, you miss that kind of sale. Um, and that might have been a way to introduce your product to your consumer. Um, we also see small pops around Valentine's Day, which we mm-hmm. uh, is always fun. A couple of things there. Again, premium edibles do well. But we also see sales of um, flower brands that index male pop being purchased by females during that time. And we uh, I did see some brand advertising last year that was like flowers for your man. Um, But it was like cannabis flower. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's Mm -hmm. some really adorable uh, advertising that goes on during that time that it does seem to uh, impact customer behavior for sure.
1: That's fascinating, and, and I go back to my traditional horticulture ag roots, and I think the entire cultivation seasons are planned around holidays for floriculture. You know, what you're going to need for Valentine's Day, when you're going to have to have those orchids in bloom, or the mums for the fall Thanksgiving season. Everything works backwards off of these very high-volume purchase dates. Yeah. So other than holidays, uh, are there any high-volume purchase times in the industry that might surprise people?
2: Yeah. Um, well, so one that won't surprise people, obviously like 420 and the times around. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, and along with that, so it's something that's unique though, right? Because when you worked, if you're working in in um, flowers, let's say, or the floral department at a retailer, there aren't like flower specific holidays. It's not like Carnation Day, right? But cannabis mm-hmm. has these format specific holidays as well. So we have Dab Day in July, again, where dab sales just like go through the roof during that time. We also have Green Wednesday. So the Wednesday before Thanksgiving is now branded as Green Wednesday, which is a, a more of a cannabis specific holiday. So those are a little different than maybe how we think about like traditional CPG goods because generally there aren't, there's not like cereal day where everybody buys Lucky Charms. Um, <laughs> so we do need to think about those. Um, and then a couple of places where people um, often don't think about a sales pop. Uh, one is Labor Day weekend. Labor Day weekend always does great. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, people it's my have time birthday, off and so... they want to
1: be able to recreate or medicate.
2: I think so. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's my birthday weekend and I figure like everybody just wants to celebrate a little with, yeah. Um, well, I everyone think too, wants to you
1: celebrate know. with you, Liz.
2: Right, yeah. Um, I think people are starting to move indoors a bit more then and so that Labor Day celebration is kind of usually, depending on your climate, one of our like big like end of summer hurrahs. And um, And so for sure, like, I think we see a lot more of the um, inhalables that people often more often consume outdoors being sold. Um, And then in addition to that, July 4th and Memorial Day weekend are also usually pretty big weekends. And it's usually (laughs) the like Thursday, Friday leading up to the weekend where we see a lot more purchases.
1: So in general, retailers as well as producers really should start tracking you know these pops in sales so they can make sure they're fully stocked and they can uh, capitalize and actually just service their customers with the the volume and the specific products that they're going to need
2: yeah yeah i mean we we have like whole modules that we've built into our tool just to look at that like holiday planning stuff because it is that's incredible it's i mean like especially i don't know i've i've used to do floral department analyses myself and like <laughs> mother's day if you miss on mother's day like oh it's a huge source invent, of annual miss, revenue oh yeah you'll miss your year in target oh yeah and it's just so critical to hit mother's day correct and i think that there's a lot of opportunities in cannabis to kind of use those those type of analytics
1: I definitely agree. Now, what other things might influence the consumer buying trends? You know, is it the price point? Is it the quality or the THC level? Is now that more states are requiring mandatory terpene testing? Is it the terpene profile, the aromas and flavors maybe? What is it that influences the consumer trends right now?
2: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to give the typical analyst answer of just like <laughs> all of those things. Um, and I think it depends which consumer you're talking about. Um, so, like, terpene profiles is going to be a very specific type of consumer, right? That's someone who, I mean, we can't even assume that that all people walking in know the word terpene, right? right. Um, but there are consumers that that will be very important to you. And so, if that's important to you as your brand, I think what we... What brands are starting to do a lot better over the years is differentiating themselves by that, right? So if terpene profiles are, that's who you've identified your consumer as, then we lean into that as a brand. Now, there are brands that are, or there are customers that are just price sensitive, right? Like it's the cheapest chocolate you can buy. Like I want 100 Hennies milligrams per
1: cannabinoid.
2: Eight. Yeah. Yeah. I want 100 milligrams for eight bucks, period. Or I want <laughs> eight to 20, you know? And that's just, that's what they want. And there are brands that do that very well. So we saw, like, we see the Canadian market right now bifurcating into um, I mean, bifurcating. There's five of them. I don't even know what that word would be, but we see it in a like ultra value, value, Winter core, premium, ultra premium pricing tiers for eighths of flour. Um, hmm. And 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 that's and if you're a value consumer, that might be very important to you. Um, I think at the same time, there are some consumers that the most important thing to them is. Uh, the like effect and so less interested are they in things like blue dream or even the word sativa and more interested are they in things like create or arouse or snooze or dream or you know and they they don't know much about cannabis but they know that when they consume this product they want to feel dreamy um
1: so you're you're segregating two very different uh, consumer groups. A terpene uh, enthusiast is someone that I would expect to be fairly knowledgeable, educated, what we would call a a core consumer, that they've been consuming cannabis, they're going to be a frequent consumer, where someone that's looking at the packaging, the marketing around a product for arouse or awake or uh, happy, any Mm -hmm. of those, they might be more new Consumers of cannabis, and they are—they're they're trying to match that expectation or that feeling they want to—to uh, to yeah. get that experience. Are there any other groups uh, you have? What are you seeing there in terms of segmentation?
2: For sure, yeah, um, and I do want to be careful with new consumers because, like wine, for instance, has been around mm-hmm. forever. I'm someone that really loves wine, and I actually do care about the altitude it's grown at sometimes. Um, but there are a lot of people that that drink, uh, you know, two buck chuck. Now that there's anything wrong with that, I actually had two buck chuck last night, but um, there are different reasons that we consume things and different things that matter to us as consumer. I am not new to wine, but sometimes I want a $4 bottle of wine Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't really care as much like, you know, where the grapes came from. It doesn't even say on the bottle. Well, uh, we're going
1: to definitely touch on the alcohol cannabis crossover later, I think, because there is so much novelty there and so much action. But in terms of what you're saying, uh, there is. There's value consumers that cross over into the, the more uh, traditional, experienced consumer side. Uh, mm-hmm. And and of course, no one wants the same thing every time. I think that's why there's so much diversity in the flower strains, varieties, the different mm-hmm. brands. Um are you seeing new products as people move away from what I would call full spectrum, where we take a extraction made from plants without any real adulteration of the chemical compounds. Now we're starting to see biosynthesized cannabinoids. We're starting to see fractionally uh, separated and even exogenous, so, so terpenes from other plant families introduced into cannabis products. Are you seeing that affect brands? And if so, how?
2: So so I think this is where you're going with it, but correct me if I'm misunderstanding the question. I think one of the places we've started to see some of that is both in edibles and beverages as um, brands look to put the higher bioavailable um, THC into the products. So these are the products that are fast acting um, or that have Mm -hmm. faster offsets. Or that um, in some of them, you actually need fewer milligrams of THC to feel a similar effect. Um, And there are a lot of brands that have started kind of forking their product lines. So Wana, for example, has fast Mm acting, and then their core product. The fast actings do cost more. Um, uh, But it probably
1: uh, prevents a lot of really dangerous experience. I mean, we've all heard the people that try an edible, wait an hour and 15 minutes, have another, and then have a lot of regret.
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Fast acting
1: could save you.
2: Oh yeah. That article Marie de where she like, Oh
1: gosh, it was through. damning. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. So, and you know, usually they're only priced, uh, you know, 10 or 20% more. So, um, Kana is another brand that does them. they have a line mm-hmm. called Nanos, um, that are again, uh, more rapid acting. And I think that those are priced about 20% higher than their traditional product. Um, we also see, uh, some of the beverage companies bringing those new, like for beverages a couple of things uh not just the bioavailability but as they do like some of the nano emulsions and stuff it's more water soluble so you don't have Mm -hmm. that kind of some of them had like a soapy feel for a while yeah Yeah, they were slippery um they're really getting out of that to where it feels more like a you know a spark like can is one you know that that feels like Mm -hmm. a sparkly water in your mouth compared to maybe um some of the carbonated beverages before them
1: well if we look at the history of cannabis infused products and I'm going to take it way back to you know Ooh. the early days where people were making brownies at home oh, people yeah. were throwing just full pieces of bud in brownie mixture and trying to make edibles and then we move to extractions and then we move to extractions that really you can't taste in the final product and they're really developing into these much more appealing consumer products as they refine the technology including that nano emulsification that rapid availability to your body what I was actually, and thank you for that, that was incredible, where I was going is, are you seeing a spike in full spectrum products versus isolate or distillate based products where you get the benefits of that entourage effect?
2: Yeah, so like maybe in inhalables, like people doing mm-hmm. a full spectrum. Yeah, so for sure it's something that um, that uh, exists. I think it is growing. Um, And really kind of the way we see it is usually a brand either does that and markets it heavily or they don't. So there's brands that differentiate themselves that way. Um, I think there definitely are like subsets of consumers that that is what they're concerned about for sure.
1: Absolutely. Now, uh, We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, you know, global events that are impacting buying trends. So right now, we're, as my wife kindly pointed out, 270 days home with the children. No. And, uh, oh, it's fine. We, we love that. It's great. Uh, it's a unique opportunity to uh, get to know our families intimately everybody.
2: We're so and good with Increase Finn. your yeah, cannabis buying. Oh, anytime.
1: <laughs> um but I have to imagine that COVID has changed consumer habits. I mean, I remember the day Colorado said they were going to close the cannabis dispensaries and people rushed out, grabbed as much money as they could. They were going to hit that limit no matter what. And within hours, the governor actually had to repeal that and make cannabis an essential industry. I fully agree with that. But COVID surely has changed buying patterns. What have you seen?
2: Gosh, so much. Um... So, you know, kind of at the start of COVID, we did see that like panicked buying. So it wasn't just, you know, toilet paper and dried beans that people were buying. <laughs> um, yeah. they were rushing to dispensaries to stock up too. Um, but a couple of things, so, you know, we had the obvious like ups and downs as things closed and opened. And, you know, at first uh, we saw a pretty good dip in inhalable products um, because it was mm-hmm. a, res- it is a respiratory disease and we weren't really sure um, as, as people, people sort were of- more helped.
1: cautious, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so most of those, uh, most of those inhalable categories have rebounded. Vapor pens are still kind of trailing on like all the, the negative media from vape, the vape lung. Yeah,
1: acetate, like right. I mean, they have their own image issue, if you will, at the moment, but it's it's yeah. getting better.
2: Yeah, but COVID didn't, didn't help for sure. Um, so yeah. they didn't rebound as much as everybody else. But um, something that we saw happen that continues to happen, so it's still true today, is we, we've seen consumers shift from going in often and buying a little bit to going in less often and buying more. And what that is translated to is larger average baskets and fewer trips. So if you're a brand, one of the reasons this is concerning is because what you brought up is a lot of people switch between products quite often. Um, as a brand, when consumers come in a lot, you have a lot of choices. You're, you have a lot of chances to change their mind, either through your packaging, your merchandising, your bed tenders, whatever you like. Now we have fewer touch points with our consumers, so less opportunities to get them to try new things. Um, But then what we've kind of seen uh, since they're coming in less, it's like eighths became much more common and ounces became much more common than grams. So grams used to be a decent part of the market in flour and they really have started to trail off. Um, People really pushed into eights and I think ounces have some of the highest unit volume growth right now um, because people are just coming in less um, and especially we all we try
1: not to place. leave the house, right? So I, I imagine limiting trips to dispensaries is just part of trying to protect yourself and be safe.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think so. And so that that kind of shifted things a bit. Um, as people shift more to delivery, we see more edibles delivered um, and fewer pre-rolls. Mm. when We're talking about maybe more can- cannabis convenience items. Um, I think pre-rolls are one of the things I like to bring up right now. I think pre-rolls are often an in-store purchase, much like you'd grab a magazine at a grocery store. Um, And as consumers go to shop online, either pre-order or do delivery, we need to be rethinking about the way that we're doing our web strategy to try to make sure that we have the proper like upsell and cross-sell opportunities there, because we can't rely on our sales staff or our tenders to kind of um, support either products for our store or as a brand, you might not be able to have them like be your brand ambassador. You might need the clear message um, for why your products are important and why consumers should buy them.
1: Absolutely. Now, this is one that I know we, we get a lot of questions about. You know, what are the hot strains? What is, as some people call it, the exotic or the new new or whatever it is? And do those trends, uh, I, I guess, change with different markets, different regions of the country? Because I know a lot of cultivators and breeders actually are well known in their region, and those strains might be more popular. Different strains in California than, say, in Michigan from different breeders. So how does the data point, or where does the
2: data point? I'm so happy you asked that. So we just launched a new tool within our insights platform, our market platform, and... What it does is you go in and you can select strain and you can compare across markets. You can compare across brands, across categories. The the popular strains are different from pre-rolls and flower even. Um, They're usually different by region. So we built a whole tool just to do those big comparisons. Um, So let me say a couple of things about it. So one, uh, yeah. So one, everybody (laughs) loves wedding cake and blue dream and gelato. Like just everywhere, those are usually up at the top. But something that's interesting about all three of those strains is they are made by a lot of manufacturers. A ton of manufacturers have a blue dream in the market. Um, Now there are other strains that are quite popular but only one or two major manufacturers will be making them. So um, I think an example of that is in Canada. I think Gene Guy is one that's not made by a ton of producers, maybe only one or two, um, but it is a very popular strain in Canada. And uh, gosh, what's in Canada, pink kush is a very common strain as well. And we don't, uh, it's very little of that in the United States. Um, Most states you'll see like a GG4. Um, MAC is becoming more popular. I think MAC, um, Miracle Alien Cookies, um, climbed a lot uh, in the last 18 months or so. Climbed Mm -hmm. a lot of ranks.
1: Well, we all thank Capulator for breeding that and then sharing it uh, with everyone because that's what happened. Uh, and I can tell you, having cultivated Mac, there's a reason. It's an incredible plant to grow. It has great trichome development. It's uh, quite vigorous. And, you know, I'm glad to seeing it's making its way. You, you mentioned Blue Dream, which has been a number one strain in the U.S. Uh, for multiple years, whereas the wedding cake and the gelato a little bit newer to the market. Um, are you seeing that segmentation in, uh, different regions or is that pretty much across the U S?
2: So I would say the top, maybe like 10 or 15 strains in each market are probably mostly the top 10 or 15 strains in other markets when we're doing us, all the States and Canada, all the States. So not as much crossover Mm -hmm. between the countries. Um, but they're always in different orders. Um, and I will say, I don't think in many states is blue dream up on top. I think I think we're starting to see like wedding cake pop above every now and then. Hmm. Um, so it, it really just, I mean, it depends to the format you're looking at. So are we talking about pre-rolls or are we talking about um, flour? Are we talking about eighths? Are we talking about ounces? Um, we do see, so a, a lot of growth in Brands that just like it—it's just labeled indica. Mm-hmm. No, indica, no, no details given. Um, or and there's growth dominant. in that.
1: See, that's so surprising to me. I would think that that would almost be like saying table wine as opposed to a pinot, which tells you the grape, and this is just a mix of stuff. So, just a general agree. category. Really, I'm I'm really surprised by that one.
2: Yeah, we'll see. We say whole brands with just a strategy that's like sativa dominant. Hmm this is our sativa um and then you see other brands that they always put out a sativa dominant but you know this week it might be strain a and next week it might be strain b and it's just kind of whatever they're like flipping in and out as they grow that's a little more common than like the slightly more artisanal um
1: we're gonna get into craft cannabis and craft alcohol in just a minute but i have another question for you and it's a little okay. bit off topic but why not
2: uh, okay, i'm game yeah
1: Wonderful. They're saying, does the data headset is collecting, does the analytical understanding, is there use of that data to better, I guess, eliminate, um, what's the word, discrimination in the industry? You know, their particular point was people of color in the industry as business owners Are not necessarily very well represented. Does the data you're collecting have anything to do with helping to kind of level that playing field to help with social justice regulations and uh, uh, laws? Is that kind of data or is it more on the consumer side?
2: Yeah, so well, I suppose a couple of things. So we definitely work with um, some of the agencies that that work for social justice, or in the a lot of states are doing like social equity licensing Absolutely. for other brands or retailers. Um, so we have whole programs to kind of help with that, um, and we partner with some of the some of the people or some of the agencies um, to kind of make sure that uh, there's like an, a more of a level playing field for analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, though, we don't actually collect. Um, any information about rape, race or ethnicity um, when we're doing like our consumer demographics. So who buys what? Um, I actually don't, we don't even have access to that. Um, so it's not something that we could really do there. I'm trying to think of other ways that it could be like used to help with that. Um,
1: well, I think as you pointed out, you're helping on the social equity side, which has become a pretty significant uh, and continuing factor in new states coming online. A lot of them have adopted social equity policies uh, to address the the dearth of POC or people of color in the industry. And you know that's that's great. It, it needs to. And I think also we have to, as I said, social justice, the reform of the prison system. It's hard to understand how people are out here uh, making you know legitimate large amounts of of money where people that were doing the same thing a few years prior, even months prior, are you know sitting in a jail cell. And so I think they are trying to rectify that, we are as a society, but there's a lot of moving pieces. And uh, you know I think that the industry is trying to address it, just not quite as quickly as I think some of us would like, but it is yeah. headed that way. And we appreciate the analytics you provide that help with that. Um, now let's talk about something a little bit more uh, fun or or enlightened, um, you know. There's been a lot of alcohol cannabis crossovers in the news lately, and you know, with that, I've started thinking a lot about the similarities between alcohol and cannabis. You have a period of alcohol prohibition, after which it was made legal. People were still demanding alcohol during prohibition, and they had speakeasies and other ways of having it, uh, just like a black market, but what changed and and the way cannabis is different is you have this huge, huge consumer base, but in terms of the rollout, it wasn't federal. It was by state and it's been very piecemeal and it's been very experimental, different state to state as they try and figure their way. So do you see any Uh, I guess, similarities with craft alcohol and and just to throw a couple of you, you have Afria, which recently purchased Sweetwater Brewing, which I think was brilliant. They got U.S. distribution, manufacturing, and immediately within about 48 hours, the CEO is talking about his plans for national distribution of cannabis-infused products in time to come but you have Tilray investing in AB, you have Hexo joining up with Molson, you even have Canopy and Constellation tied up. So this is not a one-off. Cannabis and alcohol are coming together. How do you see that? And I guess, is there a crossover with the cannabis uh, infused beverage category?
2: Yeah, I, I do think there's definitely um, some crossovers. I think uh, I think as well, um, for alcohol companies, uh, I do think that some of the um, cannabis products offer a substitute for an alcoholic product, mm-hmm. and so as an alcoholic as an alcohol company, I think it's you know pretty critical to keep an eye on this really rapid growth in cannabis. You know, we're still seeing forty percent. I think Colorado grew forty percent year over year even uh, this year, and so that's just like outstanding growth. Um, oh yes. And so I think that that's, you know, just generally something to keep an eye on. But we have started to see uh, some of those companies move into maybe cannabis. So PAPS Blue Ribbon Mm -hmm. uh, has a seltzer now, Um, a cannabis seltzer. They probably also have an alcohol seltzer. (laughs) But uh, I think think, um, it's going to be difficult for really major companies to do a ton until we are either at a place where we have federal legalization or we at least have like, um, decriminalization in a way that allows states to barter for like interstate commerce um, mm-hmm. because I, otherwise, you know, it just, it's really difficult to be a multi-state operator right now. I mean, I don't, i need to explain that to you, um, but uh, <laughs> there's, it's a lot more challenging than when you're just in alcohol, that's for sure. It, it
1: um, absolutely is. And, you know, the state Inner trade barriers are really creating different types of successful companies. Those that can adapt to very different market climates, very different regulatory environments, and still deliver a consistent, uh, you know, process which delivers a high quality product. And that's where we see a lot of the industry growing. And if you look at, and you'd be the best one to ask, if you look at flour versus all of the other cannabis 2.0 products. So anything that isn't just dried cured flour, you know, how much of the mature markets and the new markets does cured dried flour make compared to all of the other products? I've always heard it was like 30, 40%. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So dry flour still, um, is at least 40% in most markets, it, it is it has lost its fifty percent majority most places, um, but it still is the largest category, um, usually by a pretty wide margin. I and mean, we actually saw flower kind of gain some of its market share back during during COVID, which I found to be um, oh. interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that flour, uh, I will be surprised if we have a world where flour doesn't remain, you know, a really major part of this marketplace. I do think, you know, edibles and beverages have a lot of room to grow. Um, I think paper pens probably have some space to grow as well. Um, but unseeding flour, I don't know that that will happen probably anytime super soon. Um,
1: Hard to imagine.
2: But yeah, yeah, it just, it, it's just, um, I don't know, it's just a very traditional way to, to consume for sure. Um I think too as we think about some of those 2.0 products, like I think we're still figuring out what consumers want. So like in, when a market's new, you might see chocolates come to market first because I think chocolates are just a bit easier to make than gummies usually. Um and then you know usually gummies kind of come in and, and take over. Um And I think with beverages, we've seen kind of a lot go on. We had kind of that that jump of everybody doing like a de-alcoholized beer that was infused with THC. Mm -hmm. Um, We're seeing less of those um, and more seltzers now. Um, And I think seltzers probably lend themselves uh, more to cannabis. One, you can flavor them with like botanicals. So like any flavor that was in there, you can kind of put some interesting other things to have it have a purposeful herbaceous flavor. Complementary
1: flavors. Absolutely. Not but if accident. people want a beer, they want a beer. And if they want cannabis, maybe they want cannabis and, and maybe the two shall not meet.
2: <laughs> you know, when you want a beer, you want a beer. And I think there's, there are plenty of cannabis beers that are good, but I think a lot of people are looking for a beer when they want a beer. Um, yeah. And so, you know, just taking a product that already existed and trying to mishmash it might might not be the the, the best strategy here for um, where we'll see the market continue to grow.
1: Do you see any producers, and and again, to take it back to craft alcohol, one of the things I saw really successfully as say Sam Adams was growing as a brand, They had a core backbone of, you know, very loyal consumer brands, but they also had seasonal offerings, which they used to kind of test the market, to dip their toe on things they might be experimenting with, trying. And I could see that kind of adoption happening very successfully in cannabis. Do you see a crossover there?
2: Um, Like, would that strategy work in cannabis, you mean? Oh, I think that's, I think that will be one of the winning strategies. Yeah. I really do. Because if I you're think... growing
1: your wedding cake and your gelato and your Blue Dream, that's going to take care of a lot of the core consumer that just is looking for that. But you also have the more experienced or the, the the people wanting to try new things. And they've seen Blue Dream. They've had Blue Dream. Maybe they want something new like the lava cake or a slurricane hybrid or something new like that. Um, do you see high quality craft flour uh, penetrating the market? Is the 40% made up largely of, you know, bulk, what I would call commercial grade flour?
2: Um, Made up mostly, probably close to, to the majority, but we definitely mm-hmm. see, I mean, I just wrote a really big report on this actually in Canada I I wrote <laughs> about Alberta, but it, it's, it really is in every market. So what I did is I took eights and mm-hmm. I said, where's the unit volume distribution of eights? Um, and so what we saw in Canada was there's a good distribution around like, I think it was like less than 20 bucks or like less than 25 bucks. I can't remember the exact number now um, in this like ultra value space. And then we saw hmm. a, a value space kind of centering around like I think 23 to $25. And then we saw a core space, maybe just in the 30s anyway then we saw a premium space and a super premium space like things that are costing more than $50 right so we have everything from less than $20 all the way up to more than 50 and more than 50 while a small part of the market it's not as big as the less than 20 it still is a a decent part of the market and there are still brands that that is their only strategy is to be in that in that ultra premium and ultra
1: premium category
2: oh sure yeah And I think what we'll end up seeing is like, if you take like Molson Coors, right. I mean, just like conglomerate, they have Keystone. uh, So Keystone is priced at like six cents an ounce here in Seattle, they have a, Um, Coors Light, right, priced at about nine cents an ounce here in Seattle. They have Blue Moon priced at about 12 cents an ounce. And then they have some other like even smaller labels than that where they've purchased these like craft, just, I mean, like really nice beers that do seasonals that do interesting things. These are all owned by Molson Coors. And what that gives Molson Coors the opportunity to do is get a consumer, not just all through their value chain. So we're getting a value consumer on those keystones, but also through all different stages. Like I I really love a craft beer, but every now and then we'll buy a a case of Coors Light for a party or for a tailgate or, you know, there's just, there are all different occasions for different kinds of things.
1: That's incredible. And I, I really do believe that there is a niche for craft cannabis. And I think that it's going to be a very important sector as the markets mature just because these MSOs will continue to grow. I mean, just in the news today, we had, uh, what was it, Tilray's merger, and, or yesterday, but it's still, they're, they're becoming these large producers, but large producers are going to focus on commercial quantities more so than these niche uh, craft varieties or brands. And, and that's a great way to differentiate yourself. If you are trying to build yourself up, if you're a single state operator, you're uh, maybe a vertically integrated cultivator and dispensary and processor. What advice would you give on terms of branding yourself or differentiating yourself? Liz, you are the expert. We are open ears.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to give you sort of my personal philosophy to branding, at least what I think usually works. And that is to get really good at what you're good at before you do something else. Um, so be known for the thing that you're good at. If you are great at a, you know, a $6, hundred milligram chocolate bar, then be great at that and get great at that and own that market. Um, if you're great at like growing, you know, very craft, like super premium. I mean, this is the stuff that you just like, you almost don't want to even smoke it. Right. Cause it's just like, this is just so beautiful. Um, and then get great at that. Um, but I think what we see a lot of people try to do is they try to be everything. And as the as, mm-hmm. as people pleaser myself, I get it. Um, you do you want all customers to love you equally. Um, but you might need to figure out who your customer is and really go after them. And I think once you have that figured out, so let's say you're the brand and you you have this really great craft cannabis thing going, but you want to maybe accelerate your sales a little bit. I think the way most companies do that is through a product line. So we don't see a lot of companies, like you don't see... Um, a lot of where we have the same brand in like a value, a core and a premium, right? So I think we do that a lot of times through a, a separate product line where we can, um, one, keep that product differentiate or that brand differentiation for consumers, but two, we can do all our analytics like separately, right? We can do all of our ABC costing on this brand versus that brand and really like understand what's working.
1: That's a really interesting point. Now, I know in the grocery world, Uh, it's about shelf space and shelf space acquisition. So do you see better penetration to getting more SKUs in a store? I mean, you talked about a store having to have 5,000 plus SKUs. Do you get better penetration with a wider range of products or a wider range of brands?
2: Um, Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I know the exact answer to that. I'm not sure I've done that analysis before. I I can't believe I stumped you. (laughs) I would, I would, I would assume if you're running different product lines, you're still kind of one by the one holding company. And so your contract, at least in grocery retail, like your contract would be with say Procter and Gamble, it wouldn't be with Tide. And so even though Procter and Gamble owns, oh God, Procter and Gamble might not even know how many brands they own. Um, even though Rack and Gamble owns a ton of brands, the contract of the grocery store is usually with the, the holding company rather than the individual brands. So I would think it would give you, I'm not sure that it would give you like a huge advantage to just do it through SKUs versus do it through product lines. But, you know, mm-hmm. it could be that it confuses consumers at first. Um, you'll need clear messaging Something that's a little different, though, than grocery stores is like, I've never gone, you don't have this like salesperson at the grocery store, this bud tender, right? I don't go into the grocery store to pick up Frosted Flakes and some like dude walks up to me and says, oh no, you want Cheerios. Like that just (laughs) doesn't happen. Um, No. So we have a very different dynamic when we think about shelf space. Like shelf space is super important in grocery. Um, but I think we got to think about why shelf space is important in cannabis and why our packaging is important and how that interacts with the fact that I can't take this product off the, off the shelf. I can't even touch it until I've paid you for it. Um, and so it's, it's just a really different, uh, like, I I want people to be very careful when they're thinking about direct correlations there, because that influence of the salesperson is, is very unique and very powerful, you know?
1: It is. And, and, you know, I I was listening to someone say, uh, and I don't know if it's true, so please don't take this as gospel, but the bud tender used to influence about 92% of buying decisions because you would go into a place and if you were a new consumer or you weren't familiar with the product offerings or the brands, that was your person with expertise and, and so you rely on them. and you know I think that we could definitely benefit as an industry from some more standardized training and some education. I've been in dispensaries where I was blown away as if the bud tenders had taken classes and had PhDs and others where they're misdescribing the terpene levels as percentages instead of milligrams and it's like, there's no way this is 26% lemonine. It's just not possible. And they're oh, yeah. absolutely sure of it. Oh
2: yeah, so, you, you, you know, get some that are like a Somalia <laughs> and other ones that you're like, you pronounced that wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, I try not to pick on them. I just appreciate their input. But that being said, don't get me wrong. We absolutely know when there's BS. <laughs> um, and so with that, Liz, you have been amazing. I'd love to have you back on. You're just oh. such a wealth of knowledge. It was so much fun chatting with you today. Can you tell us uh, anything in closing about the future for Headset? Or maybe you'd like to shout them out on social media so people could learn more.
2: Sure, yeah. So um, yeah, Headset, like I said, we're always developing our, our platform. So like our retailer platform, I think we launched two new modules in it just this week. So we launched these really cool year and compares to help you focus on your products and pick what works best for you. Um, And then we also launched dashboards for people that run both medical and rec shops so that they can really Mm. understand the difference between what types of consumers and transactions happen in in each um, type of transaction. Um, same with Insights. Uh, so for Insights, we just launched our metadata dashboards this week where you can examine flavors. Um, you can examine the um, strain strategy of your competitors. You can understand what strains do well in what formats or states or um, even across consumer types. And so it's, it's definitely always developing. If you aren't a headset consumer, you should either follow us on like LinkedIn. So we're just headset uh, there um, or on Instagram or headset underscore IO. Um, Or on our website at headset.io, you can sign up to get like the industry reports I was talking about. We do one or two of those a month. And we do a lot of webinars where you can just get a lot of free, interesting information. Um, We just did one on good, better, best pricing and how it's really changing the industry today and making it look more like CPG. Um, And we did another focusing on retailers to help you understand why market basket analytics are important, especially as you're defining Mm -hmm. your upsell and cross-sell strategies for the new year.
1: Uh, Look, we're going to have to have you back on just to talk about the digital ways in which you can cross and upsell because it's going to be so important as the industry continues to mature. Liz, thank you so much. I am just so fortunate that you were willing to come on today, and we're so lucky. Thank you again. I uh, really appreciate you making the time to talk with everyone today.
2: Oh yeah, this was great. I would love to come back anytime. It's it's just so fun to sit around and talk with uh, with someone else that knows so much about the industry. Though next time I might have some questions for you. So that would-,
1: would be great. Although you have to know I'm going to be bugging you for some of those industry analysis reports. So uh, you will not you will you will hear from me very soon. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much. Happy holidays. Stay well and healthy to everyone that's tuned in and thank you all. If you have questions you'd like to follow up, uh, feel free to reach out to me. I can direct them to Liz. My email is david.kessler, K-E-S-S-L-E-R at agrify.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Everyone have a happy, healthy holiday season. Take care and uh, have a great one, everyone. Thank Cheers. you, Liz.
2: Take yeah. care. Bye. Goodbye.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Future of Growth. We love to hear from our audience. Have a great idea for a guest or a topic you'd like us to cover? Thoughts you want to share? Reach out to media at agrify.com. Don't forget to stay connected with Agrify at Agrify Corp on all platforms and by visiting us at www.agrify.com. See you next time for another episode of The Future of Growth.